You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. And good morning, good morning. It's uh, time for a bit of radiotherapy. It's panel beater in the chair covering for Doolittle today, who's gallivanting around somewhere, I believe, in continental Europe. God knows where. Yeah. Um, but I'm that voice you heard is Training Wheels. Good morning, Training Wheels. Good morning. And I've also got Cyber Sue in here. Good morning. Good morning. Everyone well? Great. Oh, panel beater, I'm so tired. I think I could fall asleep on the floor so, in the studio right now. Uh, avid, listen, avid listeners will know that you're a relatively new mum, but you were saying in the green room that it's not... That's not the uh, that's not the cause. No, I can't even blame her at the moment. It's me. Don't she, know. She's sleeping better than you. Yep, significantly. What's your secret to people listening who have got another young one? And no, I don't. I have none. She none? still doesn't sleep well. <laughs> oh right. <laughs> oh dear. Um, that that that'd be a money maker, wouldn't it? If we ever do find out exactly what the common denominator is in uh, good sleeping. Yeah, kids. well, I think it is a money maker, and plenty of people promote their own. Version. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah. So I was you well? I'm pretty good. Day five of a cold, but I'm on the upward, I hope. Cold, not flu? Just a cold. They're no fun. It's almost a man cold. <laughs> yeah. It is. They're not fun. Even you're, for us. You're, looking, you're looking remarkably well, if that's the case. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's two coffees. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Um, I've been trying to punch a flu. Uh, in the nose, um, and it's during marking season as well, so it's just like a double barrel. Mm, yeah. Bummer. Um, guys, what have we got coming up? Um, so you, you've got uh, something that is a name I can't pronounce well, to talk about later on. that's a great question. How do you say it? But, I mean, we can all relate to it. You meet someone and then you just can't remember the next time, did I really meet that person or not? Ah. Yeah. And what's it called? It's called Pro... <laughs> I don't want to get it wrong. Prosopagnosia. Prosa? Prosopagnosia is the official name for it. Okay. I found out I have a diagnosis. Ah. Is, is <laughs> well, let's take a look at that a little bit later. Um, and training wheels, something later on for us? Yeah, I've got a few bits and pieces, things I've seen in the news. Yeah, a bit of catch-up. Yep. Good stuff. And I've got another instalment of the self-help um, carry-on. And on this occasion, I'm going to take a look at um, mindfulness apps. Yeah. And helping to sleep, maybe. Oh, Ooh. yeah, we could take yeah. a look at that as well. <laughs> we could test drive it on you. Oh, that'd be nice. That's all ahead of us on Radiotherapy, Panel Beta, Training Wheels and Cyber Sue. We'll be back for Dr. Dr. News in a moment. News time. Well, you may recall, because it is a week ago now, you may recall that we had the Festival of the Democracy Sausage last week. (laughs) It makes it sound so positive and lively. Um, Yeah, well, I'm trying to to beat up the enthusiasm again. Don't worry, we're not going to talk about party politics so much as um, the nature of the result being in contrast to mm. the polling mm. that we um, that we heard. Um, and this is really curious for a number of reasons. And so 
Um, I got myself looking into um, what was going on with this and wondering how could the polls have been so different to um, the actual result. Again? Again. Mm. So, as is my want, I went and took a look at um, a bit of social psychology and found out there is this thing called um, uh, privacy embarrassment. Okay. Or, or embarrassment that you can experience um, in, private, in private. And this manifests in a, in a bunch of different ways. And I'll come to that in a minute. But just to, just to draw attention to the, the magnitude of the difference, there were, were, from the period between when the election was called and the um, election itself, there were 16 polls publishing uh, two-party prefer, preferred results ahead of the actual vote. Every single one of them um, uh, predicted um, the LMP getting 48 or 49 percent and Labor winning 51, 52 percent. Mm-hmm. Two-party preferred, mm-hmm. right? So 16 two-party preferred polls all going one way and mm. all consistently the same kind of number. Um, and, you know, the ramification of this is that becomes a public perception, you know, people mm. start hearing this and... Um, becomes be- a truth. Becomes a truth, yep. And um, the polling continues unabated and people are getting phone calls. I don't know about you guys, but my phone got a few coming in. Um, the landline or the mobile? Um, yeah, I don't have a landline. Yeah. But that's actually pointing to one of the potential issues around it as well. Um, and so, you know, they're doing their sampling and obviously not every phone call is... Not, not every person is getting a phone call, so it's all sampling. Um, and... They came up with those results that I've just mentioned and now we need to look for an explanation. What could possibly explain them? It could be a couple of things. One of them um, um, could be something similar to what in the US is called the Bradley effect. Mm -hmm. Does that ring a bell, guys? No. The Bradley effect refers to a Californian um, uh, uh, election campaign, uh, state level, um, where uh, Bradley, uh, the, the... the man who gives uh, his name to this effect was a uh, African American, and in the lead up to that election, everything looked like he would win, um, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the the theory started to run that um, people didn't want to appear racist mm-hmm. by saying they wouldn't vote for him. Secret racist. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so um, that's called the Bradley effect. And the the social psychologists, they call it the um, social desirability bias. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, where you've got to project um, what is socially desirable among your your people. For sure. Um, And if we extrapolate that a little bit out to uh, the elections of people like Trump... Um, Brexit and um, and most recently here in Australia, um, there might be some explanation where it's socially desirable not to be seen supporting mm. one side or the other. Which I find so fascinating, right? Like if you think your view is actually a little bit shameful, is that not an indication that maybe you should rethink it? Well, (laughs) if you're you're doing some critical reflection, yeah. Mm. So I was wondering, like, could we really apply this to this past election? Well, where my thoughts went was um, with the sort of language that was used in the campaign. You know, it was the top end of town on one side using Mm. that language and on the other side 
it was you know about um, um, have a go get get a go have a go and you know that kind of aspirational talk mm-hmm. and I reckon that language does fit a, a social desirability thing right yeah I, I find that really interesting um, and I think you're onto something there like um, you have to say what is socially acceptable and vote for the party that's socially acceptable so in your pre-election you might when it doesn't really matter in your poll, you'll vote what you think is the right thing or the perceived right thing mm. to vote for. But then when it comes down to the actual polling day, you'll do what you really think, what really matters to really you. Want to. Yeah. yeah. And ultimately probably what benefits yourself best when it comes yes. to franking credits and negative gearing. Yeah. Yeah, which once upon a time I think was referred to as the hip pocket nerve. Yes. Mm. Yeah. 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 It came in. Anyway, um, it may all be very futile to hypothesise this because there's effectively no way of ever checking it mm. you know you can't really ring up people after they vote and say hey mm. did you last <laughs> last yeah. time you we lie? spoke <laughs> last time we spoke you said you were doing this did you actually yeah. do it and yeah. i wonder if when the polls are leaning so far one way that then people think oh maybe my vote really does count and i better make sure i really do vote mm. in the opposite yeah. way yeah. it's also interesting panel beta that you said some of the polls only came back 51 49 that's not an overwhelming place mm. but it's it's in in historical terms, that's mm. fairly conventional for Australian two-party preferred and okay. it does normally roll out that way. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So, but, um, Cyber Sue, you mentioned about the phone calls and I think there's probably something about the nature of who's getting the calls now. So if they're mm. coming in on landlines... I don't, my mum has a landline. I think that's the only person I know for sure that does. Yeah, Anthony Green on election night said something about the sampling is sort of yeah. somewhat jarred now yeah. because of the yeah. mobile phone use. Just before we wrap up, more broadly the relevance here is, you know, about epidemiological research. So epidemiology attends to how health and disease is understood at population level. And um, one of the challenges that epidemiologists have is the research methods they use. And they come in for a bit of grief uh, from time to time when they ask people to keep diaries, Mm -hmm. you know, about their drinking habits or about their eating habits or smoking Mm -hmm. habits. And they always, it, it seems to be, those who are critical of this seem to be pointing out that people will under report yes. how much they're eating. I eat many vegetables. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> Never yeah. smoke. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I exercise like four or five times Every a week. Day, yeah. yeah. 10,000 yeah. steps minimum a day. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Enough of that carry on. Um, training wheels, what caught your eye in the news? Uh, I had one very sad story. Uh-huh. Um, yesterday, uh, the body of a woman was found in Royal Park in Parkville. Um and just on a personal level, I live very close to Royal Park and I walk there with my baby every day. Um, so that feels like it's very close to home. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and the other thing is, this is on, off the back of, you know, this is the fourth woman who's been murdered in a public place in Melbourne in less than a year. And I'm just sort of feeling a little bit increasingly worried for my own safety, mm. if I'm to be a bit selfish mm. about it. It becomes a bit real, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it, it sounds to me that this, this hasn't always been the case, that you may have spent most of your um, teenage life, uh, uni life so far feeling um, safe otherwise. Reasonably safe, yeah. yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, you always, you know, don't go down dark alleys at night, da-da-da kind of narrative, but, you know, often sort of think, oh, you know, the chances of it are quite low, but mm. they've they've all been in the inner parts of Melbourne and in quite 
quick succession. It's just it's feeling like an epidemic, um, which is really concerning. But something that was sort of... I don't know if you can even call it a positive, really, but something that was good yesterday was the Assistant Commissioner speaking and he gave a press conference about the crime. And we don't know many details about it at the moment. Last I checked, we still don't know the identity of the woman or any of the details of the crime. Um, But the police did describe it as horrendous, the crime. But the Assistant Commissioner, Luke Cornelius, spoke um, at a press conference and in contrast to in the past when these sorts of crimes have happened and the onus has often been placed on women to take care of their own safety and, you know, take certain steps to ensure that they're safe in public places and da-da-da. This time he he really made a point that this is about men's behaviour and that there's something wrong with the way men are socialised that's allowing this to keep happening. Yeah. Um, Which I thought was... um, I suppose refreshing in a way that the the narrative has shifted Mm. and that the police are adopting a more nuanced approach now that hopefully we can see that is constructive. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's um, it. Kind of brings to to mind the Gillette advert and the discussions that went on around that and the controversies as well. Um, Yes, the toxic masculinity thing. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. It's interesting. I lived in Hong Kong before Australia and. You know, I lived there for eight years and would be out late at night and went anywhere and never once did I feel under personal threat there. Mm. So I don't know what, but there's a difference in the society and there was never any concern about drinking or what you wore, where you went. That's Mm. very interesting. Public transport late at night. Mm. I went uh, went for a run around Royal Park a few nights ago. It was only six o'clock, but it's getting towards winter now, so it was pretty dark. And I thought, ooh, I'm not going to do that again. Mm. It's really poorly Mm. lit and it just doesn't give you a sense of security at all. You know, back to the social psychology angle on that, if a significant proportion of any population has the mindset that they're under threat that's mm. got to have some kind of carry on impact in the you know interpersonal relationships mm. between you know ostensibly strangers um you know just walking down the street and I, I see it from a male perspective i see it a lot if i especially like this time of year as it's getting darker earlier mm. um if i get off a train um station near my place um it's not that well lit um, it's okay and it's not too far from a main street and so on, but it's not great. If I get off at this time of night and I might be one of only a couple um, of people getting off, if the, other, uh, if the other person's a woman walking ahead, I become super mm, okay. self-conscious mm. about the distance between mm. so and I'm a fast walker yes. so if they're already ahead and I'm walking fast yeah, I right. start to go oh no no slow you down don't and, intimidate yeah. her. <laughs> I, that's right. I think it might have been after Jill Ma's murder I can't remember exactly when I saw it but I saw this really good list and it was something like how to how, how should men conduct themselves in public so that they don't come across as threatening and it had a list of behaviours you can adopt like cross the street and walk on the other side of the street okay. so the yeah. woman feels safer yep. and, and you know slow down those sorts of things yeah. um, and I thought that was really nice that there are constructive things that people can do to make people feel safer in public. I think that's great and I also feel what a shame for men like because I mean th- th- all the men in my life are good men and most men are good men and it's, it's such a shame that there's this that we have to do this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think the allied position on that is to make sure that good men are telling other yes. men, you know, 
yeah. how to how to think about things. In, the in assistant the... commissioner said, yeah. we need to reflect on our own behaviour, the behaviour of men known to us. We need to reflect on the what, what we say to our sons about whether they're yeah. respecting their playmates in the playground mm. or respecting women in the early days when they're looking to embark on relationships with women. Mm. Mm. Not cheery. Not no. cheery. But, but, yeah, I think the best we can hope is that some good comes of it in terms of, you know... And there, is, and there is a bit of there is a shift happening, isn't there? It might be small and incremental, but mm. as you say, that's a step. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're back on Radiotherapy with myself, panel beater, training wheels, and Cyber Sue. Um, now I'm trying to remember how to pronounce this name again: prosopognosia. Have I got that right, Cyber Sue? Well, it's something like that. Okay. Let me tell you how it manifests yeah. itself. <laughs> I was in the lift the other day with my husband and we chatted to this lady and we got out of the lift, went about our business. Literally less than five minutes later, we bump into this lady and um, he, he's talking to her and says, oh, hello again. And afterwards I said, who is that? And he said, we just met her in the lift. <gasps> and I thought... Oh my God! I didn't recognise her. I didn't recognise her, which was mortifyingly embarrassing. Yeah. And um, strangely enough, two days later, on the seven thirty report on, I think it was on Thursday, um, there was an article about this condition called prosopagnosia, where um, people can't recognise faces. Um, and what was fascinating about it is, obviously, you can imagine not recognising people, social anxiety impacts in the workplace, and, you know, there's a whole lot of, um, you, you know, it's fundamental to life is recognising people. And um, it's suggested in this report that up around about 2% of us suffer this at some degree or another, and that also, ironically, um, it's largely undiagnosed. So people, you know, you'll, you, you know we say, oh, I'm good at recognising faces or... Hmm. I'm um, ter- great, great with remembering people's names, but not their faces and so on. So yeah, it kind of really struck me this unnamed condition that a lot of us are walking around with. Um, and in this um, 7:30 report, they mentioned a face lab, which is a part of the University of Western Australia, where they're looking into it. Mm. And um, yeah, a face lab. What happens at the face lab? At the face lab. Well, they're um, studying why this happens. They figure um, from a you know, non-medical point of view, but um, maybe training wheels you can enlighten us. But it's about it's something to do with the um, way the memory is stored, and it's a very small part of the memory part of our brain to do with the patterns of faces that it just doesn't. It's either weak or non-existent. The the nervous system right there, or something like that. It's bizarre that it's a fragile part of the brain, isn't it? Because yeah. it's such a vitally important I would yes. have, social skill for all of us. I would have thought from an evolutionary mm. perspective Extremely this would important. have been crucial to be able to identify the stranger, not necessarily remember who they were, but just whether they were familiar yes. or not. Yeah, I would think so too. Yeah. And, I mean, the bad part is that at the moment there's no known cure and there's no real treatment. So we all know there's techniques like remember the way people walk or the mannerisms, and we, we all have adaptive techniques, but there's no real technical cure at this stage. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. But it did kind of make me think then. I thought, well, yeah, but facial recognition, I mean, this is a huge hmm. you know, um, software around the world. We're all aware of facial recognition software at the, when we go through customs and so on. And so I wondered whether maybe we should be putting this to better use for... Well, absolutely. I saw just during the week you've reminded me of um, uh, sisters, not even identical twins, uh, 
um, just sisters, relatively similar age, it must be said, but not twins. Um, and they were saying how um, th- they could respectively open each other's smartphone with really? the facial oh, recognition wow. function. Yes. So, yeah, the technology's there. Mm. And could it be used for... Um, Although that's a mistaken identity, isn't it? That's a mistaken mm. identity. That, and oh, that's, that's scary, isn't mm. it? Yeah. And um, autism. I mean, there's all sorts of things where, you know, recognise understanding and uh, expressions or interpreting emotions and are there other conditions that have this facial connection mismatch that can we be using this technology? Like maybe... I don't know, Google Glasses mm. to then someone with autism can say, oh, yeah, that person's telling you that they're angry or not happy. Mm. Or Very interesting. Yes. Yeah. This reminds me, I remember I watched a documentary a long time ago and they were talking about, I th- it must have been kids with prosopagnosia, I think, and they... It was picked up in there, or maybe it was with autism spectrum. You always sound you just that rolled off your tongue, it didn't it? Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea why. <clears throat> That'll be my only little flash of brilliance for the day. I think um, it was. They were finding that kids with these kids, it often first presents when their mum comes in after a shower and she's got her hair in a towel. So with the, yeah. they've come to recognise their parents based on the, the things around thing. their face, like their hair and mm. their clothes and things like that. And when that changes, then they mm. don't recognise them anymore mm. and that's really frightening. That yeah. stuff about uh, kids' developmental stages uh, is fascinating. I, you know, I only know it from a very lay perspective, but um, you know, apparently developmental psychologists have looked at um, how they can actually identify the moment that a baby realises that they are a different person to mm. what who they're looking at. Wow. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah. I found that really reassuring just as a new parent, can I just add as a little side note, that when they're really little they don't know the difference between themselves and you. So when they're screaming, crying at you and they're a newborn, they're not angry at you. It's like, okay, you're not angry at me because you don't even know I'm a separate entity yes, to you. Right. This isn't my fault. You're yeah. just having a hard day. <laughs> That's a good life. That's a good life lesson, generally, isn't it? Yeah. Not to take on everybody else's stuff yeah. and recognizing myself yeah. in the mirror. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's, it's kind of um, curious. Like with the whole Google Glasses and facial recognition coming back to that, is um, in um, the UK, for example, um, they've got like we do. They have massive issues with emergency departments and people coming in, and they just can't manage the demand. And there was another article in the news this week in Birmingham ED where they're using chatbots to do like a pre-triage of people before they come into Mm. ED where they enter their symptoms and why they're presenting and so on and then that may take them to a then to a telehealth consult Um, and so then is there scope to use this facial recognition technology to then interpret this person's in a severe emotional distress or um, yeah, right. Uh, some kind, you know, you know a, a certain crisis that we need to triage them a lot higher than somebody else, or even certain clinical signs, like if they look pale or they're yeah. eye, you know, jaundice or certain yes. signs in the eyes and things. Yeah. Presumably, that can be appified, right? So you, oh, yeah, you'd have true. that on the app, but on, yeah. on your way into casualty, you're filling in the app. Yeah. <laughs> Extreme crisis. <laughs> right. I'd say so. Yeah. Um, so, are we sure it's memory related? You know this facial recognition. I, I you reckon? Well, it's, from from what I read, it seems that it's the retaining of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's recognizing the difference. Like I was even looking at this photograph this morning of two women side by side, and to me, they looked 
the same. Like yeah, they, right. they had blonde hair, and when I watch movies, for example, I struggled to see mm. um, when you know your typical actor who looks very similar to me. They've got a beard, or yeah. like you know, you look very much like a. a uh, George Clooney. Has, has he got a beard? Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah. 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 <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, George Clooney on radio therapy. Can't tell this the morning. difference. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever been likened to George Clooney before? Never. <laughs> so. I'm, I'm your friend. There we go. <laughs> yeah. I've got a great face for radio, as they say. <laughs> I agree with that, yeah. yeah. Well, so do I, because I can't recognise faces. So <laughs> yeah, I'm right. a perfect industry for me. <laughs> um, I was trying to think of, like, I don't have the don't recognise thing, but I do have similar issue. I can recognise people but don't know where I know them from. Mm. And so that's a bit of a problem from a teaching perspective because... I basically just walk around um, thinking everyone's a former student. Mm. And, of course, not everyone is a former student. And if I'm just trying to be polite and I'm moving on and stuff, I've got to be really careful that I don't say something that locks that in, you know, because former students, they'll often want to have a chat and say how they're going and and tell you, which is great. And so you want to take that on. But you also don't – and you also – don't want to make them feel like just somebody who passed through your life for 12 weeks once. Yeah. Um, and so I can, can't remember where I see them unless I see... But if I see somebody in the context in which I met them, then I'm fine. So if I see that same person, you know, on campus in, in a... Um, you know, in, you know, in a classroom environment type thing, I will remember I've taught them before or something like that. Mm. The other one that gets me, and I wonder if this has ever happened to you, where you think you recognise somebody, um, but you know, like your, you know, in your brain that it's not who it is, who you think you're seeing. This happened to me a lot while I was living overseas. I would constantly see people that I recognised quote-unquote, from home, mm. and they just couldn't conceivably, yeah. conceivably yes. have been these people. I think yeah. I think that there's a phenomenon that happens after someone's died. I don't know if you've experienced yes. that too, right. when I you have. think you've, you see the person who's mm. died and obviously you can't have seen them. Mm. And I think it, it does happen when travelling too, and I think it's something about your brain wants to recognise familiarity mm. and mm. wants to, yeah, wants to feel safe I suppose mm. so it's looking for markers that you're in familiar territory and I think that I guess that if you look at evolution that we all come from a number of branches of maybe facial like his, historic you know historically that there might be some similarities mm. and um, in the article in the 730 report it mentioned that we're seeing more faces than ever before mm. because of obviously media and social media so yeah, right. and, tra- and travel we're seeing way more faces Exposed to way more variants and faces. Yeah. Yeah, of course. That makes perfect sense. I hadn't yeah. ever considered that. I did yeah. see... Yeah, yeah. Um, and if there's that other step that, that kind of points to where we've probably got a capacity for about 150 people in our lives mm. in oh. some okay. fashion. And so maybe our brain at times just goes, okay... Mm. Memory overload. You're and one of those 150. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And maybe in, in in professions like teaching and in medicine and nursing as well, you meet so many different mm. people all the time. Yeah, mm. yep. that overload. That 150 could be one day. The mm. Next day you've got to start all over again. Yeah. <laughs> all right, that was great. What what was it called again? 
prosopagnosia. Okay, I'll have three in the morning. (laughs) Um, Thanks very much for that. You're on Radiotherapy with Cyber Sue with Training Wheels and George Clooney. (laughs) 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 Milk it while I can. (laughs) Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Welcome back to Radiotherapy Triple R Sunday morning. You're with myself, panel beater, training wheels, and Cyber Sue. Training wheels. Hello. Couple mm. of things caught your eye during the week. Yeah, couple more. Couple, couple more. more little tidbits. Um, this is an article I saw. The AMA, the Australian Medical Association, are having their national conference this weekend, and they're talking about a range of issues, um, but. First of all, they were talking about the, I guess, the healthcare landscape in Australia off the back of the election. So on Friday, the president, Dr Tony Bartone, he spoke for the first time since the um, election publicly. I'm sure he has spoken in the last week. (laughs) Spoke publicly. (laughs) He's the quiet silent. Yeah, he's the strong silent type. (laughs) Yeah. And he talked about his concern that Australia, there's an increasing influence of the um, private health insurance companies on the way our health system operates. And he talked about his concerns that the health system is going slowly but surely down the road of turning into the US style health system, Um, which... Is incomprehensibly and terribly bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's lots of evidence that health systems that are dominated by the private system have poorer outcomes for patients in basically Mm. every. Mm. And equity goes right out the window. Absolutely. A huge problem is if you walk Mm. into an emergency department, no matter how sick you are, and the first question Mm. they ask is, Do you have health insurance? Are you covered Mm. for Mm. whatever this procedure is going to be? You can't have. Good healthcare. Hang on, we should make a distinction there. Um, there's a distinction between access to healthcare and the quality of healthcare. Is that is that what you're saying? So, if you're going into a facility and they ask that first question, that's an access issue. It doesn't tell us about the quality of healthcare, right? That's true. Yeah, that's true. But there's also evidence that even even if in in those same systems that are dominated by private um, operators, the quality of the healthcare is poorer as well. Um, so I guess there's both. And is that explained by um, uh, the incentive for the healthcare provider is cost-related rather than patient satisfaction-related? I think there's a lot Health of... Health outcome-related? I think there's a lot of issues. I think in a private system, doctors are more free to operate under their own decisions rather than following guidelines. Um, I know just from some experience of people I know that in in Melbourne, for example, there are less doctors on the wards in private hospitals than Mm. there are in public hospitals. Mm. So you might Mm. go days and days without seeing a doctor. Um, There are lots of nursing staff, obviously, um, but at the end of the day, your doctor is the only one that Mm. can change your management Mm. and prescriptions and medications and things. And if you don't see them for three or four days, you Mm. could be on the wrong medications for three or four days. It's such Um, an interesting difference, isn't it, between private and public? In a public hospital, there's always a doctor there. There's there's at least one doctor in the building. (laughs) Don't you think it depends on what you're in hospital for? Of course. Yeah, like sometimes it might not matter if you don't see a doctor very often, but you have that comfort of seeing the same doctor when you see them. Yeah. Yeah, compared to in public where 
you might not ever see the same you might not see the same doctor again or you have a high throughput but you have that higher intensity of, of, of there are plenty around yeah yeah yeah, yeah i agree with you um, mm. And I, I, I kind of, when you raised this topic, it made me think about um, literacy of the public, of what is private and public, mm. and using private health insurance. And I, it kind of struck me that I, I wonder if it's quite poor. And people think that they're going to go and use their private health insurance and they think, great, I can get great care and there's no cost to me. And what they don't realise is that actually going through private can actually end up having quite significant costs for things that you would have received for free in public Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's very true. I, I, I often hear that people are shocked to find what their private health insurance doesn't cover. Exactly. There's a lot of out-of-pocket po- costs and people say, what does it, what does it cover? Yes. You know, I'm still I'm paying all this out-of-pocket. Um, and, yeah, I think there is a And no one really knows. And your, doc, your, your, your GP, for example, might refer you down a private path and they un- understandably don't really know what it's going to cost you. And we all do what our doctor advises us to do and find ourselves in quite quite a different direction absolutely i found another article that found that about australians are paying about three billion dollars a year in out-of-pocket medical Mm. expenses and that's um it's separated out into 33 percent of that is paying specialists directly so like you say you know going to see a private specialist you might just pay that completely out of pocket because you usually don't get a rebate and for some some conditions you don't have a big like obviously there's the the people argue the waiting times in Mm. private versus public but if you've got something serious you'll be seen pretty quickly publicly for urgent yeah for urgent Mm. um situations absolutely Mm. yeah yeah that's very true um, and I thought that something else that sort of came up this week, which I thought was... Can I just, just yeah, before you go there, um, taking advantage of your proximity to health education, mm. to what extent, I mean, you've got already got a massively full overloading curriculum to deal with. Mm. Do, does it touch on the health system and health economics, health It doesn't, policy? and I wish it did, mm. because um, I think that's going to be the reality of our jobs very soon, and I don't feel like I have a very good understanding of how the system works at all. Mm. I think part of that is probably that because um, as interns, the vast, vast majority of us will be working in public hospitals, yep. and we won't have ultimate responsibility for very much at all, um, and we can sort of learn on the job. Gotcha. Um, however, that is changing. Some private hospitals are hoping to employ interns in the coming years. Okay. And I don't know what that will mean. I don't know how that will work. I, I just don't know how that will function at all. Hmm. Can I just mention one yeah, other thing that I yep. came across this week, which I thought was interesting as well, was that the um, Premier Daniel Andrews, has an, well, his government, has announced that he's, they're going to be spending nearly $2 billion on um, prison expansion in Victoria. And I just wanted to put that into context. Actually, I saw a tweet, so I should give credit to this person, David Mejia Canales, mm-hmm. who tweeted, uh, the most progressive premier, comrade Dan, <laughs> has just announced almost $2 billion to expand prisons. To put that into context, the new Joan Kerner Women and Children's Hospital, which is the big, huge new hospital out in the West, cost $200 million. So $1.8 billion on prisons can be better used by improving our community with four schools, two hospitals, two community health hubs, 2,200 redeveloped public homes and 30 new trams with spare change. Goodness me. Mm. I know a few public hospitals that would love to get some of that funding. Not to mention GPs increasing Mm. their Medicare rebate so that primary care can be properly funded for Mm. the first time in decades. It it points to this argy-bargy between... um, tough on crime type mm. narrative and public health and the privatization of prisons yep. yes mm-hmm. exactly which i only just discovered that 
there's private prisons. I didn't yeah. know that. Increasingly so. Yeah, it's a business. Three triple R. You're on Radiotherapy Triple R with myself, Panel Beta, Cyber Sue, and Training Wheels. Now, I've been running a little bit of a uh, self-help type segment um, uh, with with Doolittle uh, this year, and um, we've been looking a little bit at the, the history of the um, of self-help and so on. Today, I'm actually going to take a look at self-help in the form of meditation apps. Um, some research is starting to come. Meditation apps haven't been around that long, so research on them and their effectiveness um, is limited. But um, most certainly we would recognise um, meditation apps as a form of self-help. Mm. Just checking in with you guys, have you got a, an app on your phone for this? At least three. At oh, least yeah. three. Right. I think I've got two. Yeah, <laughs> I've got I've got two, um, and and that that might actually point to an issue that uh, we can address in a moment. Um, I got uh, my hands on a bit of research uh, insofar as it's been done, um, but just to set up the um, uh, the scene. So we're talking about mindfulness, which is um, a form of uh, training, in effect, uh, for um, your self-awareness your self-consciousness um over what what's going on for you in your brain and um and i'm oversimplifying for the sake of time but basically it just means you sit and you recognize the thoughts that are coming and going um in your in your brain there's mindful eating and all of that sort of thing but we're talking about mindfulness where you're meditating or doing a form of meditating so you're observing your thoughts and feelings and trying to avoid judging them and it's about being in the present moment present rather than moment. thinking about the past or the future too yep. much. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're trying just to uh, sit with them um, quite literally, avoiding judgment and reaction. Um, the main claims uh, are around that uh, when it's done repeatedly and routinely um, that there's uh, benefits to uh, the brain in regards to learning, memory, emotion regulation, um, uh, it's also claimed that it helps with stress management, stress and anxiety management. And um, in certain kinds of apps that deal with mindfulness, uh, it is claimed that it can help with things like compassion and sympathy mm. and empathy, you know, recognising your place in relation to those around you. But is there any proof um, with that? Well, this study that I got uh, uh, a look at um, looks at novice meditators, so people who are just starting out, right? So um, effectively this gives the research opportunity to look at a baseline, um, mm -hmm. like a before and after type situation. And these uh, meditators were randomly allocated um, into an introductory sequence um, and... Um, uh, or to a uh, psychoeducational audiobook, so mindful okay. app and psychoeducational um, audiobook with the with the controls, um, and the um, uh, they were they were then matched across a range of criteria and and um, were presented to the participants as well being programs. Right, so as far as the um, participants were concerned. Um, they took a look at um, effect on uh, irritability and. Um, Two components of stress uh, were measured immediately before and after the intervention in a cohort of uh, these, um, and they were all adults. Um, and it says, here's the uh, conclusion. While both interventions were effective at reducing stress associated with personal vulnerability, 
only the mindfulness intervention had a significant positive impact on irritability, effect and stress resulting from external pressure. These results suggest that a brief mindfulness training has a beneficial impact on several aspects of psychosocial well-being and that smartphone apps are an effective delivery medium for mindfulness training. Hmm. That's a, a nice positive yes. um, uh, experience for, for the self-help industry. For <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> George Clooney. Yeah, here we go. Um, but hang on. Uh-oh. Yeah, there's a but. There's a catch. Let's take a look at the irony of meditation apps on your phone. It shoots your screen time up, right? Shoots your screen time right up. It gamifies your relationship with the uh, with the app, and we know there's like for every piece of research along these lines, I was coming up with like multiples of research on just the stress-inducing um, function of the of the smartphone itself. Mm. All the adverts. Yeah, 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 all the ads that pop up, the notifications. I've got to get the new app now. Yeah. Yeah. There's a new one, it's better. (laughs) That's right. Well, yeah, and there's notification functions on the mindfulness apps, right? Have you meditated? Have you meditated? (laughs) Have you meditated? (laughs) Time for your medication. (laughs) Yeah, meditation. Medication. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops, there we go. Um, I just had a couple of quotes from uh, two of the big guys in this uh, app world, and um, while time's uh, racing away, uh, first from uh, Calm, Calm's a big one, and the CEO uh, said, um, you, you're using the device's power against itself in order to fix some of the issues that it's causing. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't that. know about that. <laughs> Andy, Andy Puttickham from um, Headspace uh, said, um, uh, for most of us, the phone is the most stressful thing in our life, and I love the paradox in that the irony, the phone's a piece of plastic, a piece of metal, a piece of glass. It's not good or bad. We define the relationship, we define the relationship with the phone. Very I true. love the idea that the phone can actually serve up something really good that's good for our health. <laughs> um, but to wrap up on that, to keep it uh, nice and humorous, in my prep and looking at this research going on, I did uh, come across again uh, an Onion article. And the Onion has <laughs> <laughs> always onion. got a nice little yeah. twist. And you can go, if you wanted to Google the Onion on Monk, with the headline, Monk Gloats Over Yoga Championship. And, <laughs> and, in, and in this article, um, a guru pumps his fists and cries, I am the serenest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it says that this monk um, averaged 1.89 breaths a minute oh during goodness. a two-hour competition, <laughs> nearly, nearly three fewer than his nearest competitor. <laughs> um, just for the listeners who are interested, but, like I, uh, despite the humour, I, I think they work. I know when I've done them with some kind of routine, there's unquestionably a difference. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.